Welcome to Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z, the ultimate guide for real estate investors. I'm your host, Steph Boldrini. We cover everything you need to know from finding and analyzing properties to financing and managing your investments. Tune in every week for experts' insights and tips so you can make your commercial real estate dreams come true. And in today's episode, we are sharing Dr. Doug Duncan's presentation. He is the executive vice president and chief economist at Fannie Mae. He came to give a presentation to our audience. And in this second half, he talks about Silicon Valley Bank's failure as well as where does he think interest rates are going and why. The second half is very interesting. I really recommend it. You can see the full video presentation under show notes. Here we go. The Fed's portfolio, uh, something on the order of uh, 80% or more has a move on of uh, 3% or less. Upper left hand corner, that's what I was talking about earlier, 90% or more of existing mortgages. Uh, hundred basis points uh, below the fair market rate. I would argue that Gen Xers are the folks that have two and a half to four percent mortgages. They're going to be the ones that will become single-family rental owners because when they make their next move, they will probably keep that three percent mortgage because the mortgage payment on that is less than market rents in most markets. So it's likely to be the case that they will become single-family rental investors. Now, some people will have an incentive to move. If you're going from a very high price market, I've heard there are some in the area here, to a low price market, you may be willing to sell the house and give up to 3% because the decline in the size of mortgage you'll have to buy, have to, have to buy a, a lower priced house will offset the difference in interest rates. Uh, and people. So that some households will uh, will be able to make that transaction. But I think some of the Gen Xers are going to be single-family rental owners. In the lower left-hand corner, this is one of the things that I uh, think is really important. That the single-family rental will keep aging properties in the housing stock. So the average age of single-family rental homes is probably 10 to 15 years older than the overall average. And so they are actually keeping properties in the housing stock, uh, which is hugely important, especially given the shortage of, uh, of housing relative to the, to the level of demand in the market today. So I'm, I'm very friendly to uh, single-family rental folks. This is our forecast. 2023 is basically a give back for the very good time that the industry had from the middle of 2020 to the middle of 2022. But it's not as much of a give back as we thought it was going to be because, in fact, the supply demand characteristics have held the market up better than, than what our uh, initial forecasts were. Uh, somebody said to me in the reception floor, well, of course, the $100 question is, what are interest rates going to do? Our view is the Fed will skip increasing the, their upcoming meeting here in June. They will not change rates. So what, what they meant by that is their instincts tell them that they need to raise further, but they are also knowledgeable about the fact 
that monetary policy takes time to take effect. And uh, you can see every time the Fed breaks something, it's usually a bank that fails. Now, I don't view the Silicon Valley Bank failure as that bank failure. That was a, a liquidity issue. Remember, the, the Silicon Valley Bank's assets were good assets. It's just that market prices, market rates changed so that if you held those treasuries to maturity, they would pay out. If you held those mortgage-backed securities to maturity, they would pay out. But if you had to liquidate them, you were going to liquidate them in a loss because market prices had changed. So it's not that the that they invested in bad assets, which was what happened in 07 to 09. That was an asset quality issue. Because we ran the experiment of what if you give a large amount of money to people to buy a house, give them 30 years of hitchhike and they don't have a job. Didn't work that well. Right? But that was an asset quality issue. This is a liquidity issue. I personally don't think we're done with this. Remember, it was six months and two days from the time Bear Stearns was taken over until Lehman failed. So we're only about two months into this, and you're hearing the stories about office space and loans that are underwater. Some people are going to have to turn properties in. You heard Stephanie make note of the Hilton. I think that's an important. That was an important signal about the that there are still issues to be observed in the banking system. That's not going to stop the Fed from raising rates again. I believe they will raise again in July. I don't believe that they will reduce rates until in significantly into 2024, and that's if there is a recession. If you listen to Powell, and I assume you all go online and watch the press conference, right? <laughs> that's the equivalent of a cocktail party for Congress. Chills. <laughs> Parse the language. He said the same thing multiple times. He said, it doesn't matter how fast we go. It does matter where we stop, and we will probably stay there longer than you think. So why is he saying those things? There's some history here. This is Doug's view of what he is likely thinking. He has not told me this is what he's thinking. So you know, uh, you can take, take that to what it's worth. When Volcker was appointed, he immediately attacked inflation, and they got uh, they did start to see some decline in inflation from very high levels. They also got a recession, which started in January of 1980. And because they started to see inflation move down, they stopped. In fact, they eased a little bit, uh, and inflation took off again. So they had a seven-month recession, a little bit of easing, and inflation took off again. So they had to tighten hard, and they got an 18-month recession. That's where the term double-dip recession comes from, is that episode in history. So I believe that Powell, when he says we will stay higher longer, is saying we're going to prevent there being a double-dip. So that's one thing that we would like to manage. I believe it's just Doug's view. The other thing is what's called the Greenspan put. So you've observed the Fed will have a meeting, and the forwards three months or six months out, suggest that they think the market the Fed's going to cut. They've been doing that every meeting. The, the forwards the next few months, forward, the Fed's going to cut three times in this year. 
We have not been in that camp at all because he says, and I believe he means it, we will stay higher longer. He would like to banish the Greenspan put. What's the Greenspan put? Greenspan was asked, how should the Fed treat bubbles? And he said, we don't know until after the fact, truthfully, what is a bubble. So what we will do is calibrate monetary policy focused on inflation before it bursts, and then when it bursts, we can act quickly to cushion the downside. But that came to be recognized in the capital markets as privatizing gains and socializing losses. So the market is signaling we want that same thing to continue. And Powell is saying that has adverse economic consequences long term because it leads to a misallocation of resources. And so I believe he wants to eliminate the Greenspan, now Greenspan, Nike Yellen put because it's, it's been carried out in all those administrations. So I think those are the two things that he's attempting to do, which I respect him for. It will likely be painful. How many of you were in the business in 1980? Remember the builders taking lumber to the White House and throwing it on the lawn? The tractor, the farmers took their tractors there and tore up the mall. It was a very tur turbulent time period when they really went after inflation. So the other thing Paul wants to do is make sure we don't get to the level of inflation that could invoke that social disruption. Of course, today there's not enough lumber to throw it away. <laughs> so, but I think that's the other thing that, uh, that he's working against. And I think we'll all be better off if they're successful in getting inflation back down. This was my favorite chart two years ago. I, uh, I have it on a t-shirt. Uh, I was giving speeches and uh, I told uh, people, I said, I'm threatening my staff that I'm going to have this chart put on a t-shirt and make them wear it. Somebody who's in the audience sent me a dozen t-shirts with this chart on it. <laughs> so, why do I like this chart? <clears throat> this tells the story of today's supply problem. So what it is, is the relationship between price signals and supply response. So it's tracking the year-over-year -year appreciation in house price and the population-adjusted change in housing production. And as you can see, the price signal produced exactly the response that you would expect. When prices rose, it invoked an increase in production. When prices slowed, production slowed until uh, 2008. Very close correlation. That's a really close correlation. So the market was doing exactly what you thought. So what happened in 2008 9? That's the bust. So we went from uh, building uh, 1.6 million single family homes on an annualized basis to building 400,000. So we destroyed three fourths of the supply chain. And then we held at that level of 400,000 for three and a half years. So all those people that were in the supply chain uh, when we were building 1.6 million units, 1.2 million, or, I mean, the, the labor that was aligned to the 1.2 million of that 1.6 wasn't just sitting on the phone waiting for it to ring for three and a half years. They were moving on to other things. The people that were producing PVC pipe 
for 1.6 million houses. Now we're only producing PVC pipe. And so uh, because of that downturn and the destruction of the supply chain, the construction side was behind the curve already by 2010. And they didn't really start growing again until about 2012. We have never caught up back to that destruction of the supply chain. One other little lesson, what's this hump in the dark line in 2010? That what was that jump in the price line of the dark line in 2010? Yes. Sounds out of tax credit. In the first time home buyer tax credit. In a market which has inelastic supply, if you change price, uh, ch change the terms, you'll get a price response because it takes nine months to build a house. So what happened was, as soon as people were eligible, they bid up house prices because the supply curve can't respond to that. When the program ended, prices reverted to the environment. So very important policy lesson here. Think about the structure of the market you're trying to impact when you make policy change. But basically, all those people who bought as that home was building were underwater when prices fell back down. Now eventually, it's a difference they came back out of that. But very important policy point. This is my favorite chart now. What's going on here? On the vertical axis is the relationship of household income and household price. So it's a fundamental view that a household of particular income can only probably afford a house at a particular price. So there could be some sort of relation there. It's moderated by the use of credit. So if you have to use a mortgage to buy a house, the higher the interest rate, the lower the ratio of house price to your income is going to be, right? If interest rates fall, house price can rise relative to your income. So that's all this chart is showing. And you, the dotted line shows it's a very predictable relationship. Those, those two things intersect in a very predictable way. Then you can see out in 2002, the easing of underwriting criteria that led to a, a non-supportable expansion in house price. Then when the reality of those loans not going to repay it, you saw that bubble burst. House prices fell down below the line. We went through the, the 09, 10, 11 uh, foreclosure crisis. And then the market started to clear again. And for about four years, we were right back on that line until the pandemic. And that, again, put the builders behind because they had to stop production for two reasons. We lost money on our jobs. So the question of what is the real demand going to be in housing? Uh, and also, we need to protect our workers. And we have to figure out how to build houses while keeping our workers safe. So they probably got four more or five more months behind on the production process from where they already were behind. And then when all the stimulus money flowed in, a family of three that was below all of the maximums for the program, if they saved the money, would have saved about $14,000. If they used that in a 3% down payment uh, mortgage, if they had good credit and used it for a 3% down payment mortgage, that's about a $380,000 house. So you can see why low 
uh, low priced houses accelerated in price appreciation faster than mid or high priced houses. What you can see also is we're still quite a ways from coming back to that line. So there's three ways we can get there. Interest rates can come down, house prices can come down, or incomes can go up. I would prefer that third part because what part of what got us in trouble was income transfers as opposed to income So if fiscal policy were to be redirected to generating income growth and investment to increase productivity, that would actually be the best thing that would improve affordability for households to buy and sustain a house. So I'm gonna end there uh, and uh, not expect a change in fiscal policy anytime soon. He did answer some questions at the end of this presentation, which we did not include in this episode. However, they are on the YouTube video and the answers start at 56 minutes and 15 seconds. And if you haven't already, make sure to leave us a review on the podcast app. If you are learning from this podcast, there is a great deal of work that goes into these things. And I would really appreciate a review from you guys. And I will see you next time.